You're listening to the Vineyard Milwaukee podcast. For more information about Vineyard Milwaukee, go to vineyardmilwaukee.com. Now here's our podcast. So welcome. Let me just pray for us before we dive in. God, I'm just um, privileged and honored to be with my brothers and sisters this morning in your presence, worshiping you, thinking about you, receiving from you. And so today, Lord, I just pray you put um, power on this message in the name of Jesus. I pray that you'd meet with each of us individually and, and communally, and you would have your way with this service. We offer all of this time and space to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, do you love God? And if you do, or if you don't, or if you're not sure, what does that look like for you? Like, how do you know if you love God? How do you know what that feels like or how to actually love God? How do we demonstrate love toward God? We sing songs about it, right? We sing, you know, we love you. You know, we sing these songs. Do you ever, like, sing this and sometimes you don't feel it? And you're like, I grew up singing these songs. I know I'm supposed to love God, but sometimes I don't feel a lot of loving feelings. Sometimes you may even, like, strongly not be feeling loving feelings. Maybe you're feeling real resistance, anger, or maybe, like, nothing, totally flat, I know that's been my story, and sometimes I've even felt guilty about it. Like, I know I'm supposed to love you, but, like, I don't, I don't know if I do. I don't know if I'm feeling in love feelings. I don't know uh, what it's supposed to be like. And so have you ever asked this to God? Have you ever asked him, God, how do I love you? What does loving you look like? What does it feel like? Like, how do I know if I'm loving you? I mean, we're kind of taught to ask that to our friends or if we're married to our spouses, like, how do I show my love to you? What's your love language, right? Or, or how can I be a better friend to you? So have you ever asked God, like, how, how do I love you? So I asked God this question recently, and actually it was kind of this tender moment I was having because most of the time when I go to prayer, I'm there to receive. I don't know about you, but I come pretty desperate and hungry, and I just need a lot from God. And I think he's okay with that because he's got a lot to give us. But I had this moment where I kind of recognized, remembered that I actually impact the heart of God and my love for him matters to him. And so I said, God, how do I, how do I love you? And as I was sitting there trying to listen, I just had these images go across my mind of moments with people sitting around the table with some of my kids from youth group, chatting, having dinner. Um, other people that I have extended myself for or that I have shown care for. And he was showing me all these faces and memories of specific times. And he was showing me, that's how you love me. I'm receiving all of this as love. As you're loving these people that I love, you're loving me. And so, you know, we've been, um, as you know, if you've been with us, going through the whole book of Jonah, and just so you know, we're in the home stretch. Next week, we'll be wrapping it all up. We'll, we're at the end of the book, and we'll be kind of looking at chapter four. But today, I'm actually going to take you all the way back to the beginning, 
to the very first couple verses of Jonah. And um, we're going to be looking at and considering why God sent Jonah to Nineveh in the first place. What does this tell us about the way that God loves us and receives love from us? And this is, we're going to kind of conclude our time in sort of a practical way of how we might grow in our capacity to love God. So let, look with me again at Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, as we've been talking about, as we've been going through Jonah, if you're familiar at all with the Hebrew scriptures, there's phrases in there that would immediately highlight for people who knew the Hebrew scriptures well, other stories where this idea of wickedness coming up before God or outcries of injustice coming up before God. So, for example, and, and all these stories, just like the opening line of Jonah, um, these are all places where God became disturbed by people's behavior, and he chooses to intervene. So there's this design pattern activated here where this city's violence and oppression activates a network of this biblical portrait of what's often called the cities of blood. So, for example, um, you know, Actually, another uh, translation of their wickedness has come up before me is their evil has risen up before me. So one of the first ones is, if you're familiar with Cain and Abel, where Cain kills his brother, and in Genesis 4-3, God says, the blood of your brother is crying out to me from the ground. You might, be, you might have hidden it from everybody else, but I saw it, and it's crying out to me from the ground. And the generation of the flood story, if you're familiar with Noah, if you're familiar with the whole flood narrative, in Genesis 6, 13, it says, the end of all flesh has come up before me. If you're familiar with Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18, it says, then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. So these outcries are coming up before God. And then, of course, the most well-known one, the Israelites crying out to God in their oppression and their slavery. And it says in Exodus 2, the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. Or some translations rose up to God. And what did God do? He intervened. And so there's this theme, this thread throughout the Hebrew Scriptures where people are killed, when they are enslaved, when they're oppressed, when they're abused. There's injustice, and this violence rises up to God, and he responds. He doesn't just sit by idly and watch this happen. He intervenes in some way. And so why does God do this? Sometimes in pretty big ways. Sometimes he sends prophets. Sometimes he intervenes with signs and wonders and miraculous intervention, natural disasters, consequences, deliverances. Why? Why doesn't he just kind of watch from afar and then just kind of like speak into people's hearts and hope they'll change and come around? Because he loves his creation. He loves his children that he birthed into existence. And we see this all throughout out scripture. When people are being 
corrupted or imploding in on themselves or people are being mistreated. We see his interventions again and again, all pointing the way to the complete intervention that we found in the person of Jesus through his life and death and resurrection. And so what is so, fo- so profound about this intervention is that he, God himself, comes to us in human form forever identifying himself with us as humanity. And so what God was communicating was that, and became clear in the person of Jesus is that to love God is to love his children, to love the people that he made, to love each other. This is actually how we demonstrate love to God. And likewise, he says, when you hate each other, when you hurt each other, you hurt me. I feel it. Because he is identifying himself with me. He's, he's showing that loving God and loving each other are like enmeshed. In fact, when you read examples from the Hebrew scriptures, you may think, well, I don't relate to that, like the city of violence. I'm not going around murdering people. But Jesus, as he always did, he broadens the definition of murder. If you look at Matthew 5, 21, he says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Now, there's a ton to unpack here that I'm not going to take the time to do today, but you're kind of like, so just if I say you fool, but these words had, had stronger, they, there was a lot packed into them. And ultimately, like using the word raka um, is calling someone worthless. It's like basically mean, t- complete devaluing of another human being who is an image bearer of God. Or calling someone a fool is actually like a term used for condemnation, like it's a judgment term, like you are deserving of death. And so Jesus is ultimately saying here, you're calling an image bearer of of God, someone that I birthed into existence, worthless or deserving of death. This is, in other words, you are murdering them in your heart. Like, I'm not just concerned with, like, whether you actually took a knife and stabbed someone to death. Are you killing people in your heart, in your mind? Are you having revenge fantasies? Are you wishing that person would disappear? Are you wishing bad things upon them? Are you celebrating when something bad happens to them? And he's saying, this person comes from God. This person matters to God. And likewise, he says, if we love another person, you're loving me. In Matthew 25, 40, he says, truly I tell you, whatever you did to one of the least of these brothers and sisters, you did for me. He's not just saying, I felt it, and I was like, please, when I saw you, like, take care of that person. He's saying, you were taking care of me. That was you taking care of me. When you extend yourself for another person, you're extending yourself, Jesus saying, to me. That's how much he identifies himself with us. So this is really hard, isn't it? To, like, love people that much? Like, it does not come supernaturally or easily. So how might we grow in our ability to do this? Well, I want to look at 1 John 4, 19 through 21. It says, we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. 
For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother or sister. So we love because he first loved us. And so I believe to become better at loving others, we have to become better at being loved. And so how do we figure that out? <laughs> like figure out how to love people and love God's heart enough. How do we figure out how to be loved? How to receive love from God and from each other? Well, how did Jesus do it? Right? He's our model. So he did this first and foremost by getting away with his father regularly. All throughout the stories, all the gospel writers were always saying things like, Jesus was often withdrawing to lonely places and praying. We often couldn't find Jesus because he was off with his father again. What was he doing? He was soaking in through the, through the Holy Spirit, soaking in God's love for him, God's peace, God's joy, getting kingdom lenses. He was in his human limitations. He needed God. He needed to go be with God and soak in God's love. I can tell you personally for myself that my cup runs really dry really quick when I haven't taken the time to sit with God and receive from him. I always feel it. I start to get, like, anxious. I start to get really, like, short-tempered. I get critical spirit in my heart. And I'm like, what's happening to me? And I'm like, oh, I have not really had some good time with Jesus for a couple days. I mean, for me, it, like, it happens quick. I'm like, I just need to go. I need to go get alone. And I just need to sit in God's presence and once again just be poured into and just remember that he loves me. But Jesus also, in his humanity, allowed other people to love him, allowed the human beings around him to care for his needs, to support him. And God will often demonstrate his love for you through other people. This is a common way that God shows his love for us. People are limited. They're not always going to love you perfectly. They're not always going to love you just the way you want them to. But we are still called to be vulnerable to each other and to learn to receive love if we're ever going to learn to give it away. And I don't know about you, but sometimes you'll meet people who seem so loving, like not just like superficially nice and easy to be around, but like genuinely love everyone in front of them. And these people are almost always people that are regularly receiving, have a lifetime of receiving God's love and learning to let other people love them, humble themselves are vulnerable to let other people meet their needs and love them too. Those are the best lovers, the most loving people. We love because he first loved us. So we start with God because he is a limitless supply of care to offer. He can sit up with us at 3 a.m. when no one else really wants to. He has a limitless supply of compassion. He doesn't have compassion fatigue. When we are falling apart, again over a loss that we're grieving. We meet with God because he delights to meet with us and his supply never runs out. But then we allow others to demonstrate love for us too. Even in their limitations, even in their imperfections, we still go again and again, humble ourselves, are vulnerable, recognize that no matter who we are, we still need other human people to take care of us from time to time, to love us. Self-love has become a popular statement in our culture right now. There's a lot out there on self-love. 
And just so you know, self-love in the sort of way the culture is, you know, portraying it, explaining it, is not just, you know, a biblical idea. <laughs> Doesn't line up with the scriptural idea of what receiving love looks like. And I'm not talking about just like taking care of your body and your finances and making, you know, healthy rhythms in your life. I'm just talking about the cultural idea that we can fill up our own cups. That eating our own soul food is how God designed us. That's not how God designed us. He actually created us to be dependent on him and to be interdependent on each other. So we can't find ourselves in ourselves. And I'm not, and as I said, I'm not saying we can't value ourselves or put together healthy rhythms in our lives. I'm just saying that despite the very popular uh, Whitney Houston song, the greatest love of all is not found inside of you. It's found from a source outside of you. And if you want to love God and love other people well, you need to come to the table and eat. He leads you to the banqueting table, and his banner over you is love. I want to close our time today with a video from, um, from the popular show, The Chosen. If any of you watched The Chosen, I highly recommend it. And I'm just going to show you the end of an episode. And this came to my mind when I was working on this sermon because I think this demonstrates for us how Jesus' love for others and then his willingness to be vulnerable and receive love just cuts through all the ways that we murder each other in our hearts. And so just to set up this video, this is a scene that comes from Matthew where Jesus had, was just healing people all day. There was just, it says in Matthew, there were crowds of people that came, desperate people that needed physical healing, emotional healing, they needed deliverances. So Jesus was doing ministry for hours. And he was a human being. So he was exhausted. His disciples were there with him, and they would take shifts, like, with him, uh, doing the healing and the ministry, but Jesus didn't take any breaks, and he was just out there all day. And while they're taking turns, so you don't see Jesus till the end, so he's out doing the ministry, and they're taking turns around a campfire, and they're all just hanging out talking. And it starts to get a little hostile toward the end of the evening, because as you know, if you're familiar with the disciples, they came from lots of different um, perspectives, political uh, agendas, different kinds of backgrounds, and there was some hostility among them, and this starts coming out. And so I just want you to, to see the way that, uh, well, I'll just, I'll let you see it. I think you'll get it. <laughs> no, loving people is uh, not always convenient. It does require sometimes that we're stretched. Um, I, I was having a prayer time from a place of just feeling kind of worn down um, from loving other people. And I was kind of asking God to meet me in that place, almost wanting him to alleviate some of the just heaviness. I was feeling the weariness. And I got a picture. The picture he showed me was of like giving blood. And it was just a reminder that, that sometimes it just is hard. <laughs> that doesn't mean we're doing something wrong when we sometimes feel a little weary. And it does cost us some of our time and our energy. And sometimes really loving someone um, 
it does require something. Jesus had blood on his hands from ministering to sick people all day, and he ultimately gave his blood um, out of a place of love. And so sometimes it does require something of you. But receiving love is hard too because it means that you have to admit that you need people, that you need God and you need other people. Uh, It requires some humility. It requires some vulnerability. You have to ask for what you need, and you have to learn to receive it from people. This is actually how we learn to love each other, which is how we learn to love God. Thanks for listening to the Vineyard Milwaukee Podcast. For more information, go to vineyardmilwaukee.com.